Why should you take acid? Michael Pollan will give us some very good reasons when he joins us to talk about his new book, How to Change Your Mind. In an era in which it seems like everyone's personal information is being exploited everywhere, what can't big data do? Edward Tenner will be here to talk about his new book, The Efficiency Paradox. Alexander Alto will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Michael Pollan, whose latest book is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence, joins us now from Berkeley. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Sure, Pamela. Good to be here. So I think the first obvious question is how you got to this subject from the subject that I think most readers probably associate you with, which is food. Yeah, I mean, in one way, it's a real departure for me, and it certainly involved learning a whole new subject and having a whole different kind of set of experiences. But there's also a lot of continuity. People have been reading my books from before I really embarked on food will know that my my abiding interest is really nature and our engagement with the natural world, how we use nature, both plants and fungi and even animals, and how they use us in this symbiotic relationship. And back when I was oh, working on Botany of Desire, I got very interested in, the, in the, the, the desires that other species gratify in us as part of their evolutionary strategy. And one of, you know, some of them are obvious, like food, nourishment, beauty, sweetness, things like that. But then there's some weird ones, like we use plants to change consciousness. Most of the people listening to this podcast probably used a plant to change consciousness today, whether it was smoking a cigarette, having a, a, a coffee, or eating a bite of chocolate, uh, or something more serious. And, and I've always found that to be a very interesting and universal human desire worthy of explanation. So when I heard about this research going on, using psilocybin, the chemical in magic mushrooms, to treat people and to induce so-called mystical experiences, I thought, well, it's really time to get back and take a, a, a harder look at that whole subject. I mean, it's interesting that you bring this up in the context of the natural world, because I think in many people's minds, when they think of drugs of this kind, they think that's unnatural. That's not the way our brains are meant to function. They think of people in laboratories, illicit or pharmaceutical, kind of cooking things up. But that's not the case with psychedelics. No, I see it as, uh, as a very natural thing. I mean, I think drugs, so-called, I, mean, I don't know if I should use the word drugs, because drugs implies man-made. And a lot of these are, are made by other, you know, by plants and fungi. But they, they're coursing through the natural world. I mean, uh, many flowers uh, put uh, caffeine in their nectar to influence the pollinators and make them more efficient <laughs> workers. And it just uh, it just seems to be something that is used in various ways in nature, sometimes as a defense chemical, sometimes as an attractant. The acacia tree produces chemicals that addict ants so they can never leave the tree and changes their personality, making them more fierce so they'll defend the tree. So there's a lot of very funky things going on uh, in drugs beyond uh, that include healing, but also include manipulation and you know, changing consciousness in, in all sorts of ways. But, 
Yeah, I mean, most, I mean, LSD is a synthetic creation of a chemist, uh, Albert Hoffman. But most of the other psychedelics you find in nature, whether it's mescaline or psilocybin or DMT, which is found in, in various plants. And it's a very curious thing that these, that these chemicals are coursing through the natural world. What exactly do we mean by psychedelics? What falls into that category? And what makes that category different from, say, opioids or crystal meth or cocaine? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question, and there's some definitional difficulties. Psychedelic is a word that was coined in the 50s, even though we think of it as a very kind of day-glow 60s word, coined by a psychiatrist in the, in the 50s, and it means simply mind manifesting. These are drugs that amplify mental processes in unusual ways, and profound ways. In general, the so-called classic psychedelics include drugs like LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT. There are some other drugs that sometimes get called psychedelics, uh, including MDMA or ecstasy, and uh, even marijuana, cannabis, is sometimes called a psychedelic. But the way scientists usually mean it, they're, they're looking at this class of drugs that are tryptamines, with the exception of mescaline, which is another category of drug, and that they act on the same serotonin receptors in the brain. They differ from opiates and some other drugs in that they seem to restrict their action to the brain pretty much. They have very little influence on the cardiovascular system, for example. Mm-hmm. Unlike opiates and cocaine and other things, there is no lethal dose to classical psychedelics, which is kind of astonishing. They're physiologically almost non-toxic. You know, there, there are many drugs in your medicine cabinet that you bought over the counter. Uh, without prescription, that have a lethal dose. Uh, but LSD remarkably does not. I, I wouldn't want to know what a very large dose of LSD looks like, but, but I, must, I imagine you do know. I mean, what happens if you take, like, an enormous quantity? Because it's it's extremely potent, right? You take a very minute Yeah, it amount. is. It is. I don't really know the answer to that question. I know that some some misguided researcher once managed to kill an elephant with a uh, a tremendous dose of LSD, but the elephant was apparently also getting lots of tranquilizers, so we don't know what really killed it. But the higher the dose, the stronger the experience up to a point, and then at a certain point, I don't know that once you'd fully occupied all your serotonin receptors, I don't know that anything more would happen. But you would certainly experience the, the utter dissolution of your ego and possibly everything else. <laughs> but I, I don't know the answer. I've never talked to someone who has had a dose, you know, say over uh, a thousand micrograms. They're also non-addictive. Yeah, that's another remarkable thing about them. You know, in that standard setup where the the rat in a cage is given a lever to administer drugs to itself, and if you put cocaine in that setup, it will press the lever until it dies, mm-hmm. uh, in, in preference to food. If you, if you put LSD in that setup, the rat will press it once and then never again. If you use the drugs every day, they lose their effectiveness too. So they're actually anti-addictive, if anything. And certainly the, the reaction of most people to a large experience on psychedelics is not, where can I get some more? It's, it's kind of, there's a lot of recovery time involved because it's, it's such a disruptive experience. Now, this, what I'm saying here about physiological risk ignores the psychological risks, mm-hmm. and those are real. And, and it's, it's important to mention that, you know, people do get into trouble on these drugs. There's the general recklessness that happens when you're inebriated. People do stupid things and they, you know, they 
walk into traffic and fall out of buildings and things like that. This, this really happens. But also people have really difficult psychological experiences, some of which we call bad trips, and maybe as mild as a panic reaction, although it can feel like you're going crazy or dying. Mm-hmm. But others have psychotic episodes, and people at risk for serious psychological problems or mental illness get screened out of the, of the studies that are being done in psilocybin. If, you're, if you have any family risk for schizophrenia, for example, they, they won't take you. Ditto, you know, other you know, serious forms of mental illness. So it's important to understand that you know, these are not risk-free drugs by any means. And um, there are casualties. I mean, people who just found themselves in a, a terrifying place and had trouble getting out of it. I do think the ri- those risks, though, are diminished considerably if you're, you're working with a guide, an experienced guide or therapist, mm-hmm. as people are in the above-ground ga- trials and also in the underground therapies that I describe in the book. They know what to say when you reach a point of, you know, uh, that you're melting or disappearing or going crazy. And it is, it's, it's actually when you resist what's happening in your mind during the trip that right. you can really get anxious. And so... The guides prepare you by telling you, look, if, if you see a monster, don't try to run away. Go toward it. And the best thing you can do is to surrender to the experience. And ego dissolution, which is a common phenomenon on high-dose psychedelic trips, can be terrifying because it, it can feel like a death or ecstatic depending on how you approach it. All right. So I want to now talk a little bit about the psychological risks, psychological slash physical risks, because I think that, you know, most people growing up have heard some kind of terror, you know, terrifying story like, oh, yeah, that kid, he went blind because he tripped on acid and, and, you know, that's what happened. Or, you know, that person went crazy. How true? I mean, what are the psychological risks? Do people go blind doing LSD? And if they didn't, where did that, like... Come from? Where did that rumor start? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good example. There's been some efforts to track down some of these stories. Because in the mid-60s, you know, the culture and the media really turned against psychedelics after being incredibly supportive for the first 15 or 20 years of their existence in the West. And so you have this moral panic that develops in the mid-60s, and it's accompanied by, um, and, and partly caused by, stories that, that got out there and were heavily reported in the media. Time Life, which was um, one of the big surprises in my research, was learning that Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce, who had been, who'd received psychedelic therapy in L.A., LSD therapy, were incredible boosters of psychedelics. And there was a period when Everything you read about them in Time and Life, which were, you know, media behemoths of their time, was incredibly positive. In fact, Luce insisted that any articles on psychedelics be brought to his desk so he could make sure there was nothing negative in them. But around 1965, everything turns. The counterculture has embraced these drugs. They're being used carelessly by lots of people. And stories start coming out and getting lots of attention. And Art Linkletter, you'll recall, who's a big TV personality, his daughter, who was suffering from mental illness, uh, committed suicide, jumped out of a window in her apartment. And he blamed that on LSD. We have no evidence to back that up, whether she was using it or had it in her system. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, that story had incredible currency. The blindness story was tracked back to the source. And it's kind of an amazing story. 
the commissioner of the blind for the state of Washington, having learned about LSD and getting concerned that youth would, would take it, decided it would be very helpful to make up a story from whole cloth that college kids were staring at the sun and going blind. He was forced to retract it. He was fired. But that story is still out there. I had heard that story. No doubt there are people who have committed suicide on psychedelic drugs. I'm sure that there are cases. There are many people who commit suicide on SSRIs that have been you know, uh, prescribed by their, their doctors. Um, this happens. It, 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 the question then becomes, how much attention do these happenings get? And in the full throes of a moral panic, which is definitely what happened with LSD, stories get incredible currency. There's a really interesting story from Andrew Weil that I tell in the book. There are a lot um, of interesting Andrew Weil stories in the book, actually. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a fascinating figure. He's like in this, this I mean, zealot-like he, character. He was, you know, he brought down Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert at Harvard um, with an expose in, in the uh, Crimson. He was a reporter for the Crimson, and he exposed the fact that Alpert was giving um, psilocybin to undergraduates and the two were then fired, and that became a huge national scandal and indeed helped set off this moral panic. But the story I wanted to tell you about risk is that um, after Weil graduated from medical school, he uh, volunteers at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic in 1968. When, you know, it's kind of, that's when the hate scene is souring. It's the year after the summer of love. And there are lots of people uh, ending up in the clinic who are freaking out, and they're having horrible experiences, and they imagine themselves going crazy or dying. And uh, But Weil had had a lot of experience with psychedelics, and he recognized what was going on. So he would get one of these uh, freak-out patients into the little cubicle, and um, he would, you know, he had his clipboard on and his white coat and his stethoscope, and he would take a few notes and ask them a few questions. And then he would say, will you excuse me, there, there's someone in the next cubicle who's really in trouble. And as soon as they heard that there was someone more screwed up than they were, mm -hmm. they immediately relaxed <laughs> and the symptoms passed. This is just a measure of how suggestible these drugs are and why it is important to have a guide. You brought up SSRIs. Obviously, one of the main uses for SSRIs is in treatment of depression. But you write in the book that psychedelics are being used, or at least studied, to be used in the treatment of depression. How... Would a psychedelic help someone who is depressed or suicidal? Well, it's a very different mechanism than the SSRI, as I understand it, because it's not fundamentally a pharmacological intervention, even though you do take a drug. What, the way it appears to work is that the psilocybin gives you, at high doses, gives you such a powerful psychological experience that it kind of reboots your brain, your mind. And what happens is that the experience of ego dissolution that people have relieves them of the, the kind of uh, ritual, uh, I'm sorry, the high-dose experience basically leads to a dissolution of the ego temporarily that frees you from uh, an overactive ego. I mean, a lot of, a lot of depression is, is sort of self-punishment, as even Freud you know, understood it. And that we get trapped in these loops of rumination that are very destructive and, and, and stories that we tell ourselves, you know, that we're unworthy of love, that we can't get through the next hour with a cigarette, you know, whatever it is. And these deep, deep grooves of thought 
very hard to get out of. And we, they disconnect us from other people, from nature, um, you know, from uh, an earlier idea of who we are. And the, the, the experience, the mystical experience, as it's sometimes called, or the experience of the dissolution of ego, gets us out of those grooves and gives us a break from that, the tyranny of the ego, which, which can be, you know, very harsh ruler. I want to end with uh, a word that comes up has come up repeatedly in this conversation, which is connection, because mm. it when you when you you have a chapter about the neuroscience and you and they, you have fMRI imagery of the brain, you know, on psychedelics and not on psychedelics, and you literally see all of these connections, these synaptic connections within the brain, sort of being fired off. And earlier and throughout, you keep mentioning this idea of connection with nature. And I thought perhaps you could tell us a little bit about one of your trips that you describe in the book and about how that connection sort of actually works when you when you are on psychedelics. Yeah, connection is a really key word. And a lot of the illnesses that, that psychedelics treat result from lack of connection. I mean, that's part of what addiction is. That's part of what depression is. And the drugs, by lowering, I think, our defenses, it is our defenses that patrol these borders between ourself and other people or ourself and our, ourselves and nature. And that when those walls come down is when we're able to reconnect. And I think that's really key. In my own experience, I had several uh, experiences where I felt a new connection. I had one really powerful connection, uh, and this brings us back to the beginning of our conversation, with nature on a psilocybin experience that I had in my garden, um, I felt the presence and the subjectivity of other species, and specifically plants, in a way I never had before. And, you know, most humans, when we go through nature, we have a kind of distance, a detachment. You know, we, 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 we even talk this way. We have a relationship with nature. That's a crazy thing to say. We're in nature. We are nature. Mm-hmm. But we don't feel that way. And that sense of a deep, deep implication in the natural world of being part of this garden, of being one spirit among many, and the other spirits being plants. I know how crazy this sounds, but it was a um, a powerful and wonderful experience. I've often thought of plants as having more intelligence than perhaps some other people do. Intelligence understood as intelligence on their own terms, but but a point of view and a set of objectives. And that was an intellectual conceit for me. It animated, you know, a whole book for me, The Botany of Desire. But now I felt it in a mm-hmm. way I never had before. And it, and it acquired a, uh, an objectivity, a, a, a truth that it had never had. And that was, that was quite wonderful. Well, it's an incredibly persuasive book. I don't know if it will have people taking psychedelics in the same way that we're all trying to eat more plants. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that was not my goal. Um, I was not being prescriptive. And I don't understand why people can't have a good old-fashioned vicarious experience. You know, I read books about climbing Everest, and it never occurs to me to do it. But for some reason, psychedelics are different. Well, I enjoyed your trips very much, Michael. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Pam. Michael Pollan is the author of How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence.
Edward Tenner is here now to talk about his new book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. He is a distinguished scholar at the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation, a visiting scholar at Rutgers, and has been a visiting lecturer at Princeton. Edward, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. This is your third book that I feel like falls into the category of things that can go wrong or sort of, you know, unintended consequences. And tell us a little bit about your first two books, Why Things Bite Back and Our Own Devices, and then sort of how the efficiency paradox continues that. Why Things Bite Back started out when I observed that in the so-called paperless office, the recycling bins were filling faster and faster at my then-employer, Princeton University Press, where I was a science editor, and I wrote an essay about that, and that started me thinking about all of the ways in which the predictions that people make about technology can come true in uh, in very different forms from what was originally envisaged. And after I thought enough about that, I was able to uh, propose a project for the Guggenheim Foundation and it was funded and that enabled me to become a full-time writer. The second book, uh, Our Own Devices, was really not entirely on adverse unintended consequences because I was also looking at some positive ones, but it was also about how when we modify the body with technology, there are also unexpected results. For example, if uh, when, when people wear shoes, that, that really affects not only our gait, but also the shape of the foot. The foot is naturally a very, very flexible organ. People who've been born without arms are sometimes able to do amazing things. So I looked into all of the paradoxes, positive and negative, about the interaction of the body with invention. The present book, The Efficiency Paradox, really got started as a book on positive unintended consequences. And as that was, uh, as, as I was writing that, a whole new era of the web opened up, an era of mobile computing, of smartphones, of big data, of artificial intelligence. It was really a, a new phase of technology that was not in my original plan. And <laughs> I needed to spend some time actually uh, getting my head around all of the new developments. And as time went on, I saw that there was a growing confidence in the power of artificial intelligence to do everything better than unaided human reason could do. And that was a big contrast from the attitude toward artificial intelligence when I was writing Why Things Bite Back. That was really a trough in the reputation of artificial intelligence. It was almost a marginal field at the time. People were wondering what to do. And now it's really come back and come back very, very strongly. And I'm not opposed to it at all. In fact, without artificial intelligence, for example, the rate of fraudulent credit card charges would, would just be unimaginably high. So mm -hmm. there are lots of ways in which we depend on artificial intelligence, in, in which I do. But my idea was that if we take anything too far, then it's going to bite us back. And so if we place too much confidence in artificial intelligence and machine learning, if we don't have enough confidence in our own judgment, that is going to have some 
adverse consequences. I mean, we think of efficiency as a good thing, of more information, i.e. Uh, more data, also as a good thing. What could be wrong with efficiency? Efficiency is really good except for the fact that sometimes becoming more efficient in the long run means being less efficient in the short run. You have to be able to make mistakes. You have to be able to do something suboptimally in order to get the inspiration to do things better. And if we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to reinforce what have been the most successful patterns, we have actually two risks. One is a kind of monoculture in which everybody tries to do everything the same way because Mm -hmm. that's been working out. But the other is that we are discouraging the kinds of innovations that that might ultimately lead to even greater efficiency. So I'm not objecting to efficiency at all. I'm just saying that the paradox here is that too much of it can actually be a bad thing. So give us a real-world example because you talk about how this plays out in, in four different sort of major areas, media and culture, education, transportation, and medicine. Let's talk about transportation. Like what's the downside of the efficiency that GPS, for example, affords us? I've been a user of uh, Google's navigation program Waze for at least a year or two. And I've worked my way up actually to the highest level of points to to Waze royalty because when I was starting to write about GPS, I felt that I really needed personal experience to be able to write about it. And I have to say that Waze is really great – at navigating complex systems of roads, of making turns at the right places. It's really a wonderful thing. However, I've also found that if somebody doesn't have an awareness of the journey as a whole, of the whole highway network, if somebody hasn't been working with paper maps and atlases, every once in a while, Waze can make a really serious error. It once, for example, pointed me the wrong way uh, going home from a a site I was visiting in northern New Jersey. Now, I I knew enough to realize that, that Waze was wrong. Waze also occasionally instructs me to make an illegal left turn into traffic. So, My concern is that if people become too dependent on these programs, if they outsource all their judgment, then they can get into serious trouble. But I'm not saying not to use it. I still use it, except I check with maps first. Is it also that sort of by being so efficient and directed that you lose touch with the larger context, with the fold-out map, you know, that might show other nuances that isn't available on a, you know, turn left, turn right kind of list of, of, of directives? I mentioned that I took a trip to a speaking engagement in Western Virginia last year, and I had both Waze and a very good road atlas, and I really needed both. Uh, Waze was not really going to tell me very much about the terrain I was going through. It wasn't going to tell me about stops along the way that I might see. Uh, And certainly Waze was not going to uh, give me an overview of the route. On the other hand, in many cases, the map would not be very helpful in navigating complex interchanges, uh, telling me where to turn, telling me which one of, of two plausible routes I should take. So I was very grateful to have Waze. And that trip became a paradigm for me of how the two modes could actually work together. Let's talk about education because there is a huge push to sort of inject 
technology of all forms into all aspects of education. And you talk about in your book about sort of some of the downsides of things that that we think of as, as very modern 21st century ways to learn. If you are, for example, able to do all of your homework on a Google Doc and automatically submit it to your teacher and then she's able to provide feedback and you can get it and and this exchange is sort of seamless and paperless and and you know yes efficient what's wrong with that what are the downsides and what, what do we lose I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that particular technology I submit pieces that I write in electronic format. It's marked up electronically. When I was writing the book at the early stages of editing, I was working with uh, with electronic markups and with, with Word, Microsoft Word version tracking, and I found them a great improvement over what I was doing at with, with my earlier books with the technology that was available then. So I'm, I'm really for that. What I see as the as a problem, though, is really uh, twofold. One is that a teacher really needs to have a, an understanding of the of the individual student, and technology might might actually be helpful for that. So I'm not I'm not ruling that out. But the basic problem is that to produce a, a really efficient and effective tutorial, mm-hmm. it takes an amazing amount of work. And I spoke with a professor who had uh, prepared a very successful um, online course, a MOOC, and I had not realized how much time he had to put into into each of those lessons. So when people are talking about the new learning technology is more efficient, well, it it can be more efficient for for the learner. But what people don't realize is that to to make a high quality project takes a lot of mental labor. It takes a lot of uh, a real a real personal touch. There's no no artificial intelligence program that can do that. But it can be more efficient, but it also can be less effective, right? I mean, for the on for the learner, because the research shows that, for example, while it again is a streamlined process when all of this is done digitally, that students can acquire information better and retain it if they're actually going through that physical writing process. Yes, one of the papers that I mentioned found that students who were writing out their notes in longhand actually retained more than students who were using uh, a keyboard to to type the notes in. And that's because the way we process a lecture or our notes on a document is to really ask ourselves questions. It's a more active form of learning than simply simply typing things in. So there is a complementary relationship as there is between paper and electronic materials. Mm-hmm. Most students still prefer paper textbooks and we learn differently with paper and with electronic versions. With the electronic text, people have a better recall for individual facts and items, but with paper, there is a better overview. And that's really a parallel to what I experienced going to Virginia with the printed road atlas and with ways. So you lose a bit of the big picture, some of the context, that kind of the the, the ways not to go, as it were, um, in addition to the way to, ways to go when you have these more efficient sort of determinations made That's for right. you. That's right. So by outsourcing various tasks to technology, to algorithms, to determinations made by machines, are we... Are we losing the ability to do those things ourselves? 
I think somebody who does that excessively, who is not reflective uh, about what they're doing, uh, does risk that. I don't think there's it's necessarily bad to rely on on technology. I couldn't have written this book without using Google, without using all kinds of specialized databases that the Princeton University Library uh, provides. So I've been uh, I've been very fortunate in having the technology. In fact, it would have been hard for me to start writing professionally while I was still an acquisition editor if I didn't have the efficiency of early word processing technology. So I've been, I've been a booster of technology, but I've also seen how, like many other good things, it can be taken too far. One of the ways in which most people on a day-to-day basis experience algorithms is on the internet, you know, through a search engine or through a social network feed where certain things are sort of, you know, being elevated to the top. If you type something into Google and you look at, let's say, the top 10, you know, search results, it is natural to assume that you have sort of gotten the best of the best. Is that a correct assumption? And what's getting lost? Like what's not in those top 10 results and who's determining them and and, and on what basis? The strength and the weakness of Google and uh, this probably applies to Bing too and to Yahoo results is that in principle, everybody's determining them. In principle, they're they're really a kind of collective vote on, on what is important. But As I say in the book, it's ironic that this actually comes from a very elitist practice of citation analysis in which uh, for years scientists have been reviewing which scientific papers are cited by scientific papers that are themselves highly cited. It's kind of like and an echo chamber. That's that's right. But it's it's, a, it's an echo chamber, but it's one that that very often produces lists that that kind of correlate with people's ranks in their in their field. Now, when I was an editor, I actually tried using that as a way to uh, prospect for. Uh, for scientific authors, and it it was not actually very successful. So I have some doubts even about that. But the problem is that once you get into the domain of of general knowledge, you have all kinds of uh, forces that make the results of a search uh, much less uh, organic, much less natural. For example, uh, companies pay people very, very well for so-called search engine optimization. Mm So there are there are some techniques are illegal by the terms of service of the search engine companies, but some of them are legal. So uh, organizations with a lot of money can increase their rank, whereas people, for example, with great ideas who might be just starting out might be ranked very, very low and there might be no way for them to get recognition through search because in order to come out high in search – people already have to discover you. Right. So the big guys sort of come out on top no that's, matter that's, what. That's not right. Necessarily that's right. So it's not a, it's not a, it, it's a, what I'm saying is I, I use it all the time, but I think it's very important to demystify it. And I think it's essential, in fact, in uh, schools for uh, teachers and librarians to point out that this is really a very social artifact. It's it's not an ar- it's not an oracle and shouldn't be treated as one. Well, it's also I mean it's it's premised often on profit, right? Because these are there are companies that are the, that are paying for this. They're doing it to make more money for their companies, and the ones with more money can obviously pay more to do. Better. Yes, and it's it's also it's also run to sell advertising, and, right. and that that introduces other other distortions in what you would consider to be a kind of ideal intellectual marketplace. What gets lost? 
Well, what gets lost can be the pleasure of discovering the the unexpected. And in order to discover the unexpected, though, you need you need intermediaries who are good at that. In other words, you you there's been a tendency in Silicon Valley to to dismiss so-called gatekeepers. As an editor myself, I I have never I have never especially. Uh, uh, like that term, but it, but I think on the other hand, I think the controversy has made it clear just how valuable these so-called gatekeepers are. In fact, I, I would prefer the term uh, gate openers mm-hmm. because they are people who can provide a portal to all kinds of interesting things that people might have ignored if they were just paying attention to the resources that were being promoted most heavily. In what ways would you recommend that Silicon Valley maybe introduce a little bit more inefficiency i mean in what practical ways could this could this work well one paper that i cited mentions research at uh, microsoft about how a uh, a search process that took a little longer would produce more useful results mm-hmm. so that was actually the most promising thing i've seen from within silicon valley about improvements of course there are there are practical difficulties one is that there would be a greater load on the servers and there would be a, a possibly a, a loss of advertising revenue if there were fewer searches and they took a little longer. So I'm not necessarily saying that it's practical, but I think it points to the fact that there's a trade-off between very rapid and free searches and the quality that search could uh, could provide. Now, I, I have to say, I think that if I were... Or, or if if anybody who is um, a, a uh, experienced in reference librarianship or in in scholarship uh, were allowed to 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 go into the hidden mechanisms, the black box, and tweak some things and adjust them and and wait for certain things, I think that the results of search engines could be much closer to what uh, what I would consider. A, a, ideal or, or really useful results if I if for example I were teaching a course again. And and more authentic perhaps. Yeah and more and more authentic. So it it could very well be be done. But that kind of conflicts with the goal of these companies to to that make their money by, by selling advertising. So I think there's an inherent problem and, and also that there are no um, that because of the scale of this, there are no nonprofit organizations that can really step into it. Although Early in this century, I was at a conference that the Library of Congress convened on the future of information that was so-called born digital. That is where mm-hmm. there wasn't any uh, print record or or, uh, or analog record. And one of the themes of the futurist organization that, that hosted this was uh, well, what was going to happen to Google. And somebody there actually suggested that the U.S. government would act, have to take over Google eventually because it would never be profitable. <laughs> I think maybe the opposite will happen. Exactly. <laughs> um, to go back to your uh, discussion of GPS, I mean, it's certainly true that when you're traveling or you're trying to get somewhere, you sometimes discover the most interesting things when you get a little lost. Yes, uh, getting lost. In fact, the University of Chicago magazine has ad- adapted my chapter on uh, geography in their current issue. And it, it's it's uh, the title that they gave it is Let's Get Lost. And I endorse that just because 
when I've taken a wrong turn, I've often really discovered things that were not in the guidebooks, not on the map, but I found totally fascinating. Well, inefficient, but excellent. All right. The book, again, is called The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do by Edward Tenner. Edward, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Pamela. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? So we recently broke a little bit of news that got a lot of attention in the publishing world because a very successful author has struck a multi-year contract with Audible. This is Michael Lewis, author of The Blind Side and Moneyball and Liar's Poker and a number of bestsellers, and he sold more than 10 million copies of his books. And he's kind of shifting gears here. He's taking his long-form nonfiction. He's always published with Vanity Fair for the last decade. And he is now going to be writing audio originals for Audible. And the reason I found this so fascinating was because it's kind of a bellwether for the industry. There are a lot of other big-name authors who have been striking deals directly with Audible because audio has become such an important category for the publishing industry. It's one of the it's remains the fastest growing category. Ebook sales have fallen for traditional publishers. Print has sort of stagnated. It grew, you know, a little bit, but not too much. Meanwhile, audiobooks have been growing double digits for the past five years. Is it terrible to still like accidentally on occasion use the phrase books on tape? <laughs> <laughs> I think it dates dates us a bit when we do that. But yeah, no, I think that it has, you know, for a long time this reputation of being this kind of backwater in the industry and people thought about clunky cassette tapes and going on car trips and, you know, the, kind of the iPhone changed all that. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, you you had these audiobook publishers that were only audiobooks, but only first on cassette. And then eventually the big modernization was that they did CDs. And the publishing houses either would sell audio rights or the agent for the writer would sell audio rights to one of these niche companies. And when audio started to boom, I thought it was kind of interesting because Audible was an early player in the digital realm, even before it was bought by Amazon. And once publishers began to see that they were losing out by not retaining their own audio rights, they stopped selling the audio rights to both these independent old-timey places and then to Audible and started to say, hey, we'll hold on to these. We'll build up our own audio divisions. And so, not surprisingly, Amazon slash Audible found a way around that by then saying, okay, right, we'll just buy up the rights directly from the agent. Right. And so I think that is exactly right. And it's such an interesting shift. I mean, I talked to a number of people in the audio divisions of the big publishing houses. And while years ago they would only do the blockbuster authors, and even then they would be often be an abridged version, now they're putting pretty much anything that can be put into audio into audio. And they've doubled, you know, the number of audiobooks they're producing a year. They're adding recording studios. They just don't want to lose out on the revenue from this growing category. But I do think that poses a challenge to Audible. I talked to a number of agents and authors, and, you know, Audible has been trying 
to go directly to agents and authors and say, work with us, don't sell your audiobook rights when your publisher says, no, we're going to retain those. And it's tricky because publishers are insisting on them. Mm-hmm. And authors have longstanding relationships with these publishers. And a lot of times, you know, they don't want to throw over the whole relationship to to get an audiobook deal with Audible. But I think the audio original strategy is part of a way to combat that because you know, Audible can say, well, you can do your print book with your publisher, but write something new for us and we will market it, you know, to this growing audience. And, you know, they they really do have tremendous marketing power, particularly because they're couched in Amazon. If you go on Amazon and you want to look at a sample of a book now, it gives you the audio sample. It doesn't give you anything to read. Right. Um, it's really interesting for authors. It used to be considered a really big deal if your book went to audio, it meant that, like, you had made it. Yes. And now every book goes to audio. Every single one. And even if, um, you know, self-published authors can go on Amazon, they have this exchange called ACX, and they can find a narrator and pay a certain amount and self-publish their audiobooks. So the the, the market is pretty much open to everybody. Um, another author I spoke to had such an interesting story, and it was, I think, if not the first deal of its kind, it's the first I'd heard of, is Ada Calhoun. She's the author of St. Mark's is Dead. And last fall, she wrote an article for Oprah Magazine Online that went viral, prompted all these offers from publishers. And Audible came in um, in a competitive auction and outbid every other publisher and managed to get the rights not only to the audiobook, but to the print and ebook. What's the book about? The book is about how Generation X women are struggling with middle age. I did relate to the article when I read it a little bit. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was posted, I think, a jillion times yes, online. Exactly. And, you know, I talked to Ada Calhoun about it and she said she'd always thought of you know, doing her print piece first, and and then you you get a narrator, and that was kind of the way. But she really found herself compelled by Audible's pitch, and so she's going to write this book in a totally different way. She's going to get original audio from the women she interviews. She's going to narrate it herself and really approach it as an audio-first form. And if they do, you know, Audible can sell off the print rights to this book, and they probably will, but that's not how she's approaching it as an author. You know, it's interesting. One other thing is that um, for any writer, reading your own work out loud is always so helpful and, that's and useful. True. Yeah. So perhaps these audio original books will be written even better than, you know, print original books because because they will have had that's that built into it. That's a fascinating point, and that's actually one of the reasons Michael Lewis mentioned when he said why he decided to take this route. He did cite the booming audiobook market. So, you know, he's very savvy. It's partly a commercial decision, but he said, one of the reasons I'm doing this is I think it's going to make me a better writer. He's already pretty good, but... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I look forward to listening. Thanks, Thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues, Greg Coles, Ramana Lam, and Tina Jordan. Hey, guys. Hey, Hi, how are you? Emily. All right. We will start with Greg. <laughs> well, because- <laughs> I, I am about ready to give up on James Joyce's Ulysses. What? I headed into this with such high hopes and expectations. I have and, high hopes, too. And Greg, so proud of myself. And and you'll remember that I, I said, as I set out on this, of course I'm going get, to get to the end because of Molly's famous soliloquy at the end. But... 
Um, I'm I'm now on page 215 of Ulysses. Um, two weeks ago on this show, I was about at page 200, and Oof. you think, oh, he's only read 15 pages since then. But I'm telling you, it's an accomplishment <laughs> to have read 15 pages since then. Um, a, a passage. Uh, I, I'm still reading about Shakespeare. There, it's still Stephen Dedalus and Buck Mulligan and and a group of people in the library talking about Shakespeare and his wife and his will and and his life and how it filters through to the plays. But but the language, you know, this is just three or four sentences. The constant reader's room. In the reader's book, Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdale, Farrell, Perefs, his polysyllables. Wow, I I must Uh, be out already. That was one sentence. (laughs) Item, was Hamlet mad? The Quakers pate God Lily with a pristine in book talk. So, you know, sometimes I laugh in this book because Joyce is being funny. He makes jokes. He makes wordplay. And sometimes I laugh because he's being so antagonistic to the reader. He's just being such a jerk. And it makes me laugh that he's um, doing that. But... I have to back up and read it again. And I'm reading this at midnight in bed. <laughs> and, um, that's your problem. Trying to kind of battle my way through it. So um, that's where I am. I'm, I'm still reading Ulysses um, now and forever. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it, I did say to my wife a, a few nights ago, I don't know if I'm going to continue this, but for the nonce, <laughs> I am. How about you, Ramon? It's another you power reading? broker, I guess. Wow. Um, I... I am having the inverse experience where I'm inside of a really good run of excellent books. The first novel that I want to talk about is a book called The Juniper Tree by Barbara Comins. And it was reissued earlier this year by New York Review Books. And um, it is a wonderful and very strange uh, modernization of a fairy tale. It's one of the creepiest Grimm's fairy tales. It is. A, it is a truly creepy tale and a truly creepy novel is about. Is the Grimm called the Juniper Tree? I believe as it well? is. I believe it is, and I think. And uh, Barbara Comins, we should say it C O M Y N. That's right. Yeah, C O M Y N S. And um, she's not a writer who I know anything about. And um, the novel does not adhere to sort of the rules of novels. Um, but there is the death of a child and the death of a mother in this book. It's a truly disturbing and very weird book. Um, so that was a great reading experience. And then I picked up a book called High Dive by the writer Jonathan Lee. High Dive is a contemporary book. It came out, I think, two years ago. And it is ostensibly about a terrorist plot to assassinate Margaret Thatcher. It's so weird to have that and the Hillary Mantel thing sort of happening. I mean, this is like uh, those weird time. things that bubble up in the culture, right? And um, Just a desire to kill off <laughs> certain <laughs> But what, what I loved about the book is that actually, although Thatcher looms over the book, it's not really a book about politics, but it's a it's sort of a family story about a father and daughter, and it takes place in this hotel in Brighton, and it's really quite moving and it's sort of beautifully done and the 80s feel really resonant right now culturally and uh, although the book is sort of a couple of years old now he seems to have tapped into a feeling that exists in the culture right now and uh, I thought it was a really lovely lovely book about what what motivates political you know a desire for real political change and what you know the small lives that are affected by big political decisions and then the third book I was going to talk about, I see Pamela Paul is also prepared to talk about, <laughs> is a novel called Less by Andrew Sean. Is it Andrew Sean or Sean Andrew? Andrew Sean Andrew Greer. Sean Greer. And um, this book is so good. I read it in two nights. Um, 
it is a book about an unsuccessful gay novelist. And as an unsuccessful gay novelist myself, <laughs> I, it was a little close to home. Um, but it is a book that is so funny. And I think that humor always sort of, humor is a tell for real intelligence. And so there's a lot of intelligence and warmth in the book. I have a feeling we're going to talk about it in more detail mm-hmm. in a second. Well, I know. was going to say, you know, since you brought up the 80s, one of my uh, favorite, I mean, there's so many great parts in this and I have many, many folded corners and underlined um, sections. But since you mentioned the 80s um, and the humor sort of combined with the the human insight, I'll read aloud one little part. So um, this is Arthur Less. He is middle-aged. He is um, in a dance club. In the club, as he later recalls, a woman gets onto the dance floor and really lets go during a Madonna song, really takes over the floor, and people are clapping, hooting. She's losing her mind out there, and her friends are calling her name, Peter Pan, Peter Pan. (laughs) Actually, it isn't a woman. It's Arthur Less. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, and then later on in the same page, um, well, it then goes on. Yes, even old American writers are dancing like it's still the 80s in San Francisco, like the sexual revolution has been won, like the wars over in Berlin has been liberated. One's own self has been liberated. And what the Bavarian in his arm is whispering is true. And everyone, everyone, even Arthur Less is loved. But then further down on that same page, he just has this line. It says, life so often arrives all of a sudden. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like the humor of that, of this sort of, you know, serious novelist dancing on the dance floor is is really, I think that is what the book, how the book works in a nutshell, right? Like it's so funny. But then he talks in this very brief aside about, I mean, you can't help but feel he's talking about the AIDS crisis, right? And that the, the sort of conjuring a reality in which, you know, an entire cohort of gay men who were his peers didn't die. And it's just like a, such a small thing. And he keeps the book focused on the, this, what's sweet and what's funny, but it's, but it's mindful of what is not sweet and what is not funny. And that's why the book is so good. I think I have goosebumpsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I loved less, but before I talk more about last, let's talk about what you're reading. Tina. So I've picked up Ruth Ware's the death of Mrs. Westaway And I should say up front that I have a complicated relationship with Ruth Ware books because unlike most people, I did not love In a Dark, Dark Wood. I didn't love it either. Okay. Which was the book which really like sort of catapulted her to fame in this country. Uh, She's British. And I then liked very much one called The Woman in Cabin 10. And the reason I liked that is that it was a closed door mystery. Mm. It happened aboard a ship. And I have a passion for the for closed door mysteries. I mean, the greatest one, of course, is Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Right. I just yeah. read that last year. Oh, for it's the first so time. good, yeah. right? It's yeah. so great. Such so great. Book. So it looks like The Death of Mrs. Westaway is going to be another closed door mystery. And that's one of the reasons I picked it up. It starts with, and I'm only just maybe a quarter of the way through, a young woman who's a fortune teller, impoverished, um, living in a Brighton-like place, you know, in some shabby apartment, gets a letter in the mail that she is the heir, you know, to to a fortune that uh, she needs the dream. to. That's yeah, the it's dream. the dream, right? <laughs> and she's a scammer and a grifter, and she realizes immediately, hey, this is not meant for me. But how can I? Oh, how right. can I make yeah. it, it mine? Anyway, how yeah. can I seize it? What can I do? And so she's only just showed up at the grand, of course, crumbling, ivy-covered, scary house where she's going to meet the rest of this family. And so the bad thing hasn't happened, whatever it's going to be. Like, I don't 
I mean, Mrs. Westaway, the death of Mrs. Westaway. Okay, Mrs. Westaway is dead. She's the person who died. But clearly something else bad I mean, is going to happen. You can tell just by looking at the cover that something bad is oh, yeah, like, in that book. Okay, first of all, <laughs> it has like curly wrought iron things and also a scary looking black bird. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know that I'm obsessed with book jackets and there seem to be a lot of scary birds on book jackets <laughs> recently. But, you know, if it's as Good as the woman in Cabin 10 was, and that was a thoroughly satisfying closed-door mystery. I'm all in. However, given my disappointment, you know, within a dark, dark wood, I am prepared to be sad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Andrew Sean Greer, who listeners of this podcast will remember was a guest last year when the book came out in hardcover. And I want to read one more bit from the book. Again, this is one of those books that you read and whoever is next to you while you're reading is just subject to you know, <laughs> constantly laughter. stopping. We, we should say, too, th- this book won the Pulitzer, which is very rare for a comic yes. novel. Yeah. Yeah. We should also but, say that everyone's fighting over the paperbacks in the office and I don't have one yet. <laughs> I have given away two copies, I have to right. say, but not my own because it is so marked up um, and is special to me. But I'll read one of the not comic um, passages that I just think everyone can relate to in some way. The injustice of it all weighs on him heavily. How awful for the string of inequities to be brought out in his mind, that useless rosary, so he can finger again those memories, the toy phone his sister received while he got nothing, the B in chemistry because his exam handwriting was poor, the idiot rich kid who got into Yale instead of him, the men who chose hustlers and fools over innocent less, all the way up to his publisher's polite refusal of his latest novel and his exclusion from any list of best writers under 30, under 40, (laughs) under 50. They make no lists above that. The regret of Robert, the agony of Freddie. His brain sits before its cast register again, charging him for old shames as if he had not paid before. He tries but cannot let it go. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. You have that, and I have James Joyce's Quaker's Pate God Lily. Right. Yeah, I think I maybe was. I'll read Andrew Sean Greer. <laughs> um, the other book I read and, and read it but have not acted on is a book that is also recently out and I think on our bestseller lists already by a writer, Jaron Lanier, um, who has been a bestselling writer of other books, notably Who Owns the Future and You Are Not a Gadget. And I think most recently, Dawn of the New Everything, um, which came out last year. This is a really short book. It's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. I have to say it was on the kitchen counter. Um, It arrived in the mail at my house and has a little cat on the cover. So my kids picked it up, you know, intrigued. And I will warn you that argument three, and we'll have to use a little beeping here. (laughs) Social media is making you into an beep. So <laughs> there's that. Uh, my kids were tittering with excitement over, over the fact that like a serious looking book with a cat on the cover had that word. But it is it's a you know, it's a polemic. Um, and he basically argues exactly as the title says that you should disconnect from almost all social media, but most specifically from Facebook and Twitter and and Google. And, you know, what's interesting about Jaron Lanier is that he's not anti-tech. He comes from within the industry. He supports a lot of it. He works for Microsoft and has an involvement with LinkedIn, which is arguably a social network. It's a polemic, but it's not coming from your average tech hater overall. And there's some interesting things in here. It's it's probably actually one of those books, I have to say, 
that might be interesting too to read electronically because he you very helpfully has a lot of footnotes, which are links to websites with more supporting research to back up his arguments. And I mean, just looking at them, I thought, oh God, like I don't have to type all of that in manually. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, that's that's the other book I'm reading. I'm curious to know if you're actually going to delete your accounts, how persuasive the argument has proven. Or um, you know, I think that he makes a very persuasive argument for deleting social media accounts for social purposes mm. that is separate from professional considerations. Right. Right. And, you know, anyone who is in journalism, like a few people in this room, uh, <laughs> know that, that social media is, is one of the ways that people reach our journalism. So, But I did think that, that the arguments he makes, many of them are, are very persuasive. And, you know, if I were a 16-year-old kid, I would recommend reading this book and, and acting on it. Oh, resigning from Twitter and staying at home and reading. That That's sounds, right. Sounds good to me. That's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks. you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.